When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate Money is sponsored by OneHub, letting you securely store and share your business files online. Featuring the all-new OneHub Sync, the fastest way to keep all your teams working from the same page. Try it for free, and Slate Money listeners can receive a special discount by visiting onehub.com money. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep with no ongoing subscription, and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com money. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. Hello, and welcome to the National Politics Edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which this week we're going to be a little bit more political than normal because we have the single most special guest we have ever had Woo. on this show, ever. We, as always, have Kathy O'Neill from MathBabe.org. Hi. And Jordan Weissman. Hello. The Moneybox columnist here at Slate. But much more excitingly, we have the one and only Zephyr Teachout, Hello, Zephyr. Hello. I mean, it doesn't compare to how excited I am to be here. <laughs> um, you're a law professor at Fordham University, and we are going to. You also have a new job, which we are going to talk about in a minute. And you also ran for governor last year. I didn't win. But but you almost got a New York Times endorsement. I know, so close. <laughs> it was so close. But Zephyr, Zephyr is the smartest politician. Wait, do you, are you a politician? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I want to reclaim politician. It's one of those sort of... <laughs> it's a dirty word no more. Exactly. Dirty word it's no like more. reclaiming so, spinster, reclaim politician. And Zephyr, not only are you law professor, you are also a published author. What is your book? Corruption in America, From Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. So, so Zephyr is one of the one of the awesome politicians. So we're excited about this, and um, 
she is going to help us talk about politics and Hillary Clinton, who has economic policies, apparently, who knew, and also Puerto Rico, uh, which it's about time, I thought, that we should talk about Puerto Rico. But, Kathy. Yeah. What is what is the? I, I don't want to ask Zephyr what the Zephyr news is. I want to ask you what the Zephyr news is. Well, I don't really know either. That's why we asked <laughs> Zephyr to come. I know that she has a new job, and I know that it's with the Mayday Pack, and That's I know right. that Larry Lessig is involved. So, I, could you explain a little bit about what the goal of a Mayday Pack is? Yeah, Mayday Pack is uh, super pack to end all super packs. What's it's, a pack, Zephyr? And well, what's a super pack? <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> So it's a uh, post-Citizens United invention that allows for um, corporate, um, among other, it doesn't have to be corporate, um, spending around elections. So, I mean, I think the best way to think about Mayday Pack is that it is designed, is is really more around its purpose than around its form, because we may actually be looking at changing the uh, aspects of the legal form. And the purpose is to show that millions of Americans are actually willing to donate money uh, to get big money out of politics. It's anti-money money. It's well. It's not. <laughs> yes. Is it an ironic pack in it's a certain like, sense. Yeah. You know, it, it's like antimatter. Yes. Sort of, yeah. yeah. So, so Larry Lessig, who started this, uh, talked about it in terms of embracing the irony, embracing the fact that you need to use money to sort of wave around at politicians to threaten them if they don't actually start to do something structural about the way campaigns are funded. I, I probably have less irony in my um, temperament. Um, I'm a little earnest. Larry so. Lessig being another law professor. What is it with law professors? Yeah, I know. It's Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama. Yeah, they have ideals. Uh, yeah, and then a brat uh, was not a law professor, but a professor. Yeah. Um, Apparently a will to power as well as ideals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I actually think it's a pathology. Um, <laughs> I, I think... Uh, I think it's a pathology in our system that law professors, unlike everybody else, have a lot of freedom to both speak freely and uh, organize their own time. So I think one of the reasons you see actually more professors in politics is that we have flexibility both in our um, uh, both in our time and in what we can say. And way too many other professions, people are sort of chilled because they're worried about offending their employer and because they don't have the time. So well, you don't see math professors so much in politics, but I think lawyers are a little bit more <laughs> well, politically they're, aware. They're, they're also paid to think about laws and specifically yes. laws they would like to change. So what, so what, what are we going to change? With the, yeah, what's yeah. the, so, what's so the, the goal? The idea is to, what, campaign against? people with lots of money? <laughs> well, the, the basic goal, the big goal is we need to make uh, private financing of elections toxic and move to a public financing system. So actually, there's a lot of confusion um, about the relationship between Citizens United and how campaigns are funded. Even Bernie Sanders gets them confused all the time. He, he'll say uh, things like, I'm going to overturn, I'm going to, I refuse to take PAC money and I'm in favor of public financing in the same sentence as if they're the same thing. So there's two distinct issues. One is post-Citizens United, the Supreme Court has said that corporations and anybody else can spend money independently in elections. And that's the PAC stuff. And that's the PAC stuff. The other, which which has been a problem for decades and increasingly getting worse, is that the basic way that you raise money just to, to get on the radar, and the basic way you raise money to get on the radar up to 2009, before Citizens United, was you raise money from private sources. And to me, that's the root issue. That's actually, in some ways, a as big 
I don't know which is bigger, but as big an issue as Citizens United, because what it it means is that politicians' jobs are to be basically beggars and fundraisers. And that doesn't lead to leadership. It doesn't lead to thoughtful policy responses. And it also really, really distorts the scope of policy responses we, so, we can have. And, and so I have I have two big questions. The first, the first big question I have is um, how much does money matter in elections. So, you know, if I have, if you have a, a well-funded candidate going up against a less well-funded candidate, how much of a difference does that make? Um, what you see is that it makes an enormous difference up to a certain point, and then it makes very little difference after a certain point. So the most important money to just get take is the money that you need to get taken seriously. And that is uh, to get taken seriously, honestly, by the press. One of the reasons that, you know, when I was running for governor, uh, we wanted to raise money um, in order to pay my staff, which was amazing, and uh, to run some ads. We actually never uh, raised enough to do um, uh, to send flyers or mailers or anything like that. But the key reason to raise money, by far the most important reason to raise money, was to get taken seriously by the New York Times, to get taken seriously by the Daily News. There's a weird ecosystem, actually, where you raise money so that the press will give you the title of serious. Um, but so that early money is absolutely essential. And the key is, um, you know, when I... When but you, the PAC money doesn't help with that. Well, it actually does in a complicated way, but I, I, I want right. okay. to focus first on that, and I'll explain how the PAC money changes things. So the question is, okay, uh, who can get taken seriously? And under the current private financing model, it's very difficult to get taken seriously if you don't basically have a Rolodex of people, of hundreds of people who will give you $1,000. I mean, that, that may sound easy for the super rich, but $1,000 is an enormous amount of money for most people. And, and like politicians, presumably, they spend their days on the phone calling yeah, people and asking right. for money. That's what they do. We imagine them thinking about laws, but actually they don't. Like Their aides think about their laws, right? It's like these politicians are on the phone. They're begging for money. Yeah. And, it uh, you know, the most recent estimates are that it's up to 70% of politicians' time is basically, you know, being a vacuum cleaner salesman, calling people up and saying, will you buy this? Will you buy this? Will you buy this? And think about what that does to you. So you talk about the effects of money. One is who can get in the game. Two is what it does to politicians. So one of my theories is that one of the reasons we see such low turnout is that people don't like to get out to vote for somebody who looks a little dead in their eyes and looks like they're sycophants and they've been begging all day. It just doesn't feel like leadership if they have that kind of uh, whatever you want feel. Um, the temptation know. also must be like, I want to do this less, so I'm going to pander to the richer people. I mean, obviously. Oh, right? yes, right. And so, the, and, the, and the other thing I was talking, we, Mayday is, um, has Republicans and Democrats. Um, uh, we have some very prominent Republicans on our board. And I was talking to one of them a couple days ago saying, you know, for you, what's the, what's the real reason you care about public financing? And so he uses sort of the market model and says, I think we have a market failure in our politics. Hmm. Uh, the market failure is one of supply. We're not getting the supply of good people. And the reason we're not getting that supply is because good people don't want to run because they don't want to be fundraisers. And uh, good people can't run because they don't know enough wealthy people. And that shouldn't be the way that we choose the supply of, of politicians. And my second question is Mayday itself, as I understand it, was, was created to throw a bit of financial support behind candidates who supported campaign reform. That's right. Yeah. And that's still the main aim? Um, yeah, I have... Uh, oh, 
I'm in this moment right now of just having taken over. So I'm the CEO and board chair. We're also actually actively looking for an executive director at the same time. So it's a moment of, of big change. If you, if you want to be executive director, just email <laughs> slatemoney at slate.com. <laughs> Are you guys going to help sort? We'll, we'll, help, we'll help you with your headhunting. <laughs> we've, got, we've, got, we've actually gotten some great um, applications already. But obviously, that's a pretty serious um, sort of essential question is who's going to be the day-to-day executive director. But I actually, uh, I think very much like Larry Lessig, the big goal is to, to uh, change the way we fund elections in America. So one way to deal with that is to work on particular campaigns. But there's other, and to throw money behind particular candidates. But that's not the only way. And um, so we're actively thinking about other ways One thing that I think is important, and I don't know the particular mechanisms for this, um, is to really explain how uh, public financing is a race issue and public financing is a feminist issue um, and public financing is a class issue. So people see the way that the current private financing model leads to... A bunch of rich white guys. Yes. (laughs) Before you go on, could you just outline what public financing would look like? Because I don't don't really understand it. Yeah. There's... uh, New York City has a model. um, Connecticut has has a model. Um, sometimes I actually think maybe we should stop calling it public financing and just call it the Connecticut system. And like, I, in some way, you know, when the Australian ballot took over um, the country, um, the basically the private ballot, the secret ballot, it was called the Australian ballot. And I think that in some, sometimes helps because you know, oh, it can work. It's, yeah. it's, 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 um, it's worked elsewhere. So there's a bunch of different models, but the basic idea is if you show that... Um, there are enough people who are interested in you running. Um, the state or federal government will make sure that voters know who you are. So the New York City model is for every $5 donation you get, you'll get a you know, six to one match um, from, the, from the city. Um, other states have a lump sum, like you show that you have X number of, of uh, petition supporters, and then you'll get a lump sum support. But the basic idea is voters should have a choice uh, among serious candidates. And right now they have a choice among candidates who get private financing. But so, there's no... So go ahead. So I, I kind of have a question about unintended consequences um, for getting money out of politics, right? Because on the one hand, I understand the, the kind of just grossness of the current system, right? You know, politicians spending 70% of their time basically being telemarketers for themselves. On the other hand, you know, I feel like we've reached a point, at least in national politics, where the big problem isn't necessarily lobbyist influence or influence even of the wealthy per se, but just sort of really, really stark polarization. And in some ways, corporate money is a moderating influence on that. Like the Chamber of Commerce is more moderate than the far right of the Republican Party right now. And so if you further take out corporate influence and you just let kind of everyone you know, whoever can get noticed, whichever way possible, get funded. Doesn't that doesn't that actually open up the chance that you'll have an even more polarized outcome? Okay, so I completely disagree with okay. everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hear. Um, first, uh, I put as a core value this uh, more perfect union idea, the idea of self-government. And I think our first question should be, are we building a system that leads to self-government or not? And there, there's a whole bunch of secondary questions. And right now, this is not a system of self-government when the possible politicians are those that are, are pre-selected through basically a process of the wealthiest 1%. So I think of that as an essential problem, even with other things that come along with 
you know, people talk about the messiness of democracy. Second, well, the, me- the second, messiness has like serious costs, though. I mean, that's anyway. Second, second, yeah. second um, I think one of the reasons you see a kind of uh, politics of the absurd in a lot of areas, uh, which some people call polarization, but it's just this kind of absurdity talking about certain issues is because we aren't talking about core economic issues. And the reason we're not talking about core economic issues is that politicians aren't actually in a position to have serious fights about different kinds of structures of the economy. So it actually leads to to more debate around social issues when people feel like they have less power over the the basic structure of their economy. There's a really deep sort of DC uh, thinking, which I disagree with, uh, which is that our core problem here right now is polarization. I think um, our core problem here is that our politicians are in cages. They are servants. They are not leaders. They are not free. And if they are freed out of those cages, some of them are going to be even crazier. And some of them are going to feel freer to work across the aisle. And I think, you know, you're going to what we really want is free leaders and free citizens electing those free leaders. And I'm, you know, if you look at world history, democracy is a very, very, very rare thing. So part of the urgency you hear in my voice is the sense that, you know, we're a whisper away from a deeply undemocratic uh, state. And that's what I'm most concerned about. Wow. Okay, I think and she was hitting the table for emphasis. I'm skeptical of some of those points, like okay, the idea that Jordan, we, we, we like, go, bah, 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 okay, okay, all right, okay. okay. <laughs> we finished. We're giving I, we're giving Zephyr the last word. Okay, on that fine, okay. last word. <laughs> we are sponsored this week by One Hub, which is the better way to securely store and share your business files online. Clouds make things better. OneHub. So you want to be productive. You have a team. They need to have access to files. You want that access to be fast. You want it to be secure. You want to be able to call live human beings on customer support. Then you sign up with OneHub. They have this thing. It's called peer-to-peer plus one technology. Everyone gets everything fast and securely. So what you should do is try it out. See for yourself why Thousands of other businesses have trusted their storage and collaboration and syncing needs to OneHub. And you do that and you get a special 30% discount by going to onehub.com slash money. That's O-N-E-H-U-B dot com slash money. And now we're going to keep on talking about money and politics and democracy. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Puerto Rico, because it's about time that we actually had a full segment on Puerto Rico. Um, It's very easy to frame this thing in a sort of money versus democracy way. You have on the one side bondholders, basically lenders who have lent Puerto Rico $72 billion and want their money back, and they want all of their money back. And then on the other side, you have Puerto Rico who's saying, we can't afford to pay you your money back. And unless you give us some debt relief right now, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And you're going to wind up with less and less in in the long term. And the reason why this is in the news this week is that Jack Lew, the Treasury Secretary, came out with a letter to Orrin Hatch saying, basically, Puerto Rico is right. They're not going to get a bailout, which like all bailouts would actually be a bailout of lenders rather than the island. That, but what he does want is for them to be able to go through bankruptcy. They want, he wants them to be able to file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy and reduce 
their debts because the big problem in Puerto Rico right now is it's not allowed to file for bankruptcy. And so if it defaults on its debts, there will just be a court who forces them to pay all of the debts anyway. Can we back up to the first thing you said, which is like, if you wanted to think about it as this, you know, money versus democracy, because there was this, I mean, I like basking in that just for a moment. There was an article this week about hedge funders uh, putting forth a plan with the help of an IMF economist they hired to tell um, Puerto Rico to close down their public schools and lay off the teachers and give them the money. So, it, I mean, there is... Not all of the schools. Not all the schools. <laughs> not all the schools. But there is this definite sort of like, uh, you know, sorry, the financial, the powers that be are going to take over and we don't care what you think and we don't care what's going on over there. And And this is... And the question of the schools is a fascinating one because... What's happened is it's obviously hard politically to close down schools, but what's happened in Puerto Rico is that you've had this um, massive demographic change and sort of brain drain over the years because there's very little economic activity in Puerto Rico. It's a very, very poor commonwealth. It's uh, the, the poorest state in America is Mississippi, and Puerto Rico has about half the wealth of Mississippi per capita. So it's desperately poor. If you have ambition and smarts and ability to work and desire to work, what you do is you leave for New York or Miami or somewhere like that. So the population and the working age population has been going down. People have been having fewer kids. It's become basically a quasi-retirement community. Obviously, there's very little tax base there. This is one of the reasons why they can't repay their debts. But also, this reduces the number of kids who need to go to school. And so on a sort of objective basis, there are quite a lot of schools and quite a lot of teachers teaching not that many kids. I suppose you could look at it that way. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I feel like we're what this is all going to come to a head in the courts, essentially, because I don't think anything's going to pass through Congress just in terms of, uh, you know, talk about polarization and whatnot. I mean, they can't. You don't even, think Congress will allow I don't think Puerto it, Rico to file for bankruptcy? I don't think so. I think it's going to, there's too much, they're right, they're, there's all this growing, uh, they're growing objections from uh, the Republican Party for various reasons. So, what, but, are, the, what so, are the things on the table? Yeah, right what, now? What, what, why, why would you object to uh, a bankruptcy regime One thing Puerto is, Rico? Uh, some people, well, talk about corporate influence. This is actually one case. Some of the hedge funds have kind of tapped into Republican objections. And there's this whole idea that- The only ba- case that yeah, Jordan uh, acknowledges yeah, is bad for corporate. Yeah, well, so this is a very, this is a very specific one. But, um, and there's this whole theme that, you know, oh, U.S. bondholders are going to be uh, taking haircuts. These are mom and pops who invested in municipal, what they thought were just safe municipal bonds. Um, a little bit of background here. Puerto Rico- there's so many things wrong with the Puerto Rico situation. You can just go layers and layers and layers. But basically, even when their economy was going south and they were taking on too much debt, people were still borrowing because they were triple tax exempt. I mean, you, they, you don't pay any state, local, or federal tax on, on the interest from people these bonds. People still lending. Yeah, still sorry, st- still lending to them. And so a lot of people ended up with these bonds on their books. Uh, on their on their books. So a lot of Republicans are like, oh, we can't give you know you know taxpayers in my district a haircut. Even God knows how many actual just you know regular taxpayers own these bonds and how many are owned by institutional investors but so that's why I, per, actually, I, per, yeah. I mean the answer to that is it's mostly individuals is it mostly individuals because okay. um corporations don't get those tax benefits okay so it's it's all individuals or individuals through municipal bond funds I've, basically i've read a lot of the bondholders are actually also people in puerto rico which adds another wrinkle to all of this but so what happens here is if they don't come to some sort of resolution and Puerto Rico is basically sitting there saying, well, we're defaulting and their bondholders are saying, well, we want to be paid. It ends up in court 
where they then have to resolve exactly what is the obligation of a pseudo state, a pseudo state entity like Puerto Rico to pay its debts. Can it just, you know, can its revenues just be seized essentially, or can it basically tell its bondholders to bugger off? And there's a lot of ways in which this is like the grease of the of for the United States. Like we have, what it comes down to, and Jordan just outlined it pretty well, is that. You know, there's the question of who's responsible, the people that borrowed too much or the people that lent too much. And everyone wants it to be the other guy. And r- right now we're seeing, you know, OK, well, that it's true that they were tax exempt in three different ways. But on the other hand, they might have thought a little bit before lending more yet more money to Puerto Rico that the Puerto Rico might not be able to pay this money back. So and I'm just saying there's two sides to that, to any to any deal like that. An- another parallel there is, you know, states have balanced budgets for the most part. And so that when you take a bond for a state issues a bond and someone you know lends them, there there's that sense of security that okay they are they are reasonably fiscally responsible. Puerto Rico, even though it you know had these weird bonds that were tax exempt, doesn't balance its budget, and that's why I was taking out it. It also has obligations that states don't have. For instance, one of the big sources of its debt is the power the power utility, the power company. In most states, that's a utility that can declare bankruptcy. In Texas, a huge utility just declared bankruptcy fairly recently. Um, In Puerto Rico, since it's state-owned, it can't do that, and so it becomes a state obligation. So people were treating it almost like a state or a municipality, but it wasn't. And even though it had those tax advantages, sort of the same way Greece, people were treating it like any other European country, but it wasn't. Well, I I mean, I have a bunch of questions. Just, you know, I'm really curious about the the domestic political um, uh, pressure points. You know, who's engaged? You, You said that hedge funders are very involved involved in Congress right now. Do you think that they never thought this was going to happen? The, the, the hedge funders, and I've spoken to quite a few of them, um, are really good at looking at the various balance sheets and persuading themselves that they can find a way that, that the money can get paid back. Um, that's one of my sort of basic questions is, is are they counting on the politi- are they counting on Congress or were they really thinking that this was going to but yes, they They're are also. But, the they, but just like you, they are generally lawyers. If you um, if you look at distressed debt, I am um, generally hedge a lawyer. Funds, <laughs> um, uh, the the people who buy distressed debt are overwhelmingly lawyers because that's exactly what they do. Is they look at the legal um, infrastructure and they look at they look very closely at the wording of the bonds and they decide. You know, if I took this bond to this court and what jurisdiction is it in? You know what could I persuade a judge to do? And it's all about the paperwork. And this is this is what they do. And recently, Puerto Rico has started issuing debt under New York law, be- precisely because it could get a slightly better interest rate, precisely because the lenders were happier to lend under New York law because they reckoned that they would have more yeah. remedies. So I, I, I think one of the things that, um, you know, there's... One of the things that I take out of this and also relates to a lot of New York politics is that uh, we typically see um, commercial actors as commercial actors who occasionally engage in politics or or sort of private corporate actors, whatever. But hedge funders are increasingly as a as a group with exceptions, becoming political forces. Like I imagine, you know, 400 years from now when they're doing a history of American politics, they'll talk about the decline of parties and the rise of hedge funds, and we should see them as political actors. Then the puzzle becomes, how do you hold hedge funders accountable? And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Hedge Clippers, this group that you may know, that's theory is, well, you don't uh, you you both directly hold them accountable and name them as political instead of just treating them as um, you know 
individuals who are looking for their the most money that they're in some way seeking to govern to your point yeah and i think i think i want to add a little bit as a previous as a former hedge funder that they it's, it's true that they absolutely explore the legal angles but the way they think about it literally is if i'm paying 75 cents on the dollar that i want to make sure that the chance of me getting my money back are better than three-fourths and I'm going to exploit every avenue to get my money back, including political avenues. But it's it's like just one of many, many ways they're going to try to do it. You know, they're going to, the, hey, I'm going to do your paperwork for you and show you exactly which schools you need to close. So you can't say you don't know, you don't have a plan. You know, I mean, they're going to do everything they and, can to and get that money back. If we look at the, what happened in Detroit, which was, now Detroit is a city, it's not a state, so it was able to declare bankruptcy. But even there, essentially what happened is the creditors took over. Nearly always when you declare bankruptcy, when you go bust, when you default on your bonds, the creditors wind up taking over. They wind up bringing in a sort of technocratic government who will who will do, you know, what's right by the book. And this is the sad truth about debt is that when you get into trouble on your debts, your creditors basically own you, and they are going to take over. And so what kinds of protections, I guess, you know, separate from the the economic tragedy, there's a sort of a political tragedy happening here too. And what are the kinds of protections that you think are important to not allow that to happen so that you can have, you know, uh, creditors without ownership? What I'd like to see is, you know, them just not pay that money back and people learn that they shouldn't lend money to people that can't pay it back. I mean, I'd love to see a little bit more of that happening. I don't see that happening here or in, in Europe. I think, I think the chances of no more bad lending are exactly zero. <laughs> I'm not saying no more, yeah. but realize the risk is real. We are also sponsored by Trunk Club, which is basically, this is for half of the audience. This is for the guys out there. This is how you get out of shopping. It's so good. You go to trunkclub.com slash money, and then they do all of your clothes shopping for you. How awesome is that? You talk to a human being. This person gets to know all about you, what you like, what kind of clothes you like, and then you get this trunk in the mail, and it's full of awesome clothes, and you try them all on, and you get to see which ones are comfortable and which ones fit, and then you keep the ones you like, you take the one, everything else, put it back in the trunk, send it back, the trunk is free, the shipping is free, the service is free, absolutely everything is free, except for if you find something you like, you get to keep it and you pay for that. It's unbelievably convenient. I've done it myself. I am not wearing my wonderful new hoodie because it is way too hot outside today but trust me i will be all the time and it's everything it's not just the new swimsuit that you need because you want to go swimming it's not just the shorts and it's the shoes they'll even make suits for you anything you want just go to trunkclub.com sign up find someone to do your shopping for you free up time to do the stuff you want to do and look great at the same time trunk club dot com slash money and now jordan because we haven't had enough politics yet no never <laughs> enough talk to talk to me about now i i hear there's there's a lawyer who's running for president there is another presidential candidate uh, other than donald trump 
Uh, there's one. O- <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, there's at least one other. Uh, her name is Hillary Clinton. And she's a lawyer, right? She is a lawyer. Yeah, uh, but just she, like her husband. But it's she is all the, lawyers all the way down. She, she is a lawyer who has things to say about economics, just like, anyway. Um, she's going to undo everything her husband did, right? Yeah, anyway. Um, so that, that's, I, I doubt that, but she is trying to kind of strike a more progressive pose, and she's come up with a big theme for the campaign. It's the fight against quarterly capitalism, as she puts it. Um, And she said in a big speech recently, American business needs to break free from the tyranny of today's earnings report. This was her quote. Her theory is that the problem isn't capitalism. It's that capitalists are ruining capitalism by being too focused on the short term and causing companies to disinvest, to not invest at all, to not invest in their workers, to not invest in new technology. And if only people thought a little bit more long term about uh, the companies that they put their money into and didn't just treat them as a, you know, something from which to extract cash, um, everything would be a little bit better and maybe even close to all right. I have mixed feelings about all of this, but as part of uh, her plan, I guess her, her biggest actual proposal so far has been a capital gains tax increase. We've talked about capital gains before on the show. Um, right now, there are essentially two types of ways you pay for profits on investments. You have either the short term, you have a short term capital gains, which is you would just pay like normal income, like a, you would for any other income. Lo- then there's the long term capital gains rate, which is c- kicks in after one year. She wants to change the system. So slowly, over time, the longer you hold your stock, the less you pay on the profits you make when you sell it. Um, and it would be a six-year sliding scale. I, again, have thoughts. But Felix, I want, I, I want to turn it to you first. Or Kathy. No, you I, ha- to, I have you, a you strong opinion about okay, this. Go first. I happened to have coffee this morning with one of my tax lawyer friends. And he made the very important point that this isn't really a co- corporate governance issue whatsoever. Because co- corporate corporations pay corporate tax and they don't see any difference between these kinds of things. Their capital gains is the same as anything else. So this really only applies to individuals, mm-hmm. yeah. which is to say individuals who make money on the stock market, which is to say the 1%. This is a tax on the 1%. Yes. That's all it is. It's not a corporate governance issue. It's not about the shareholder. Economy. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with, with Kathy on this one that it seems to me that Hillary Clinton is Unhelpfully, unhelpfully alighting two different issues. One of them is corporate governance, which may or may not be a problem in this country, although my feeling is it's probably less of a problem as we move to fewer and fewer companies going to public and more of them being private. Um, but the other one is just a simple fiscal policy of like, what should tax rates be? And if you want to say that capital gains rates should be closer to income tax rates, I'm all in favor of that. But don't dress that up as a corporate governance issue. I know we should talk about economics here, um, but <laughs> just for a second, I want to say that one of my concerns as a Democrat, I'm not speaking as May Day right now, <laughs> one of my constant concerns about Hillary Clinton, separate from my disagreements with her policies, I don't think she's a very good politician. And um, I sort of imagine this this policy proposal coming out of a whiteboarding of, okay, we know we need to be more populist. We keep hearing that. So let's find something that sounds kind of populist. Um, and it, it's a, I actually think it 
it's neither gets at, at the root issues of problems within our non-competitive, the non-competitive a- aspects of our current current capitalist system, which I think are real, that we have increased concentration um, and increased inequality, nor is it actually that powerful a rallying cry. It's really hard for me to people to see people getting out of bed to say, this is, the, <laughs> this is, now I understand that she's a populist. Now I feel like she's fighting for us. So it actually feels like a double fail. So I mean, I she actually, missed I, a chance to yeah. say, let's tax the rich. Yeah. yeah. So, so let me, let me actually, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about where this came from. And I think you're you're kind of right on the money in a lot of ways, um, which is Hillary Clinton has this dilemma. She's trying to figure out how to talk about inequality and play to the left and at the same time not totally alienate her Wall Street base, which I think it's not even just like uh, she needs the – it's not even she needs the donations. I think she just actually – that that she is just kind of a creature of that world now. I mean, that's been her social milieu for so well, long. Well, her husband yeah. was a creature of Wall Street. Yeah. You know, her, yeah. and, and it's yeah. impossible for me to imagine that Larry Summers isn't going to get involved in the Hillary Clinton yeah. campaign so, at some point. Yeah. He, is, he is like so, the ultimate creature of Wall so Street. She's trying to figure out a way that to kind of split the baby, right? Um, so this idea of uh, quarterly capitalism being a problem and addressing it through tax rates... Uh, evolved in a couple places. Uh, one is the Center for American Progress, which is a very well-known DC uh, think tank, a liberal think tank with uh, ties to her through some of Clinton's former advisors. Um, and they've talked about ideas along this line before as like one possible policy proposal. Another uh, person who's brought up something similar is Larry Fink from BlackRock, uh, the world's largest money manager. His, his version of it is that you should just cut capital gains, essentially, even all the way down to zero for people who hold uh, who hold stocks for longer. But And that would actually benefit BlackRock because in Because he makes all of his money Money's, from capital gains. Yeah, well, yeah. and also for he's a buy and hold. Like BlackRock just buys and holds stocks as opposed to the activists who kind of are a little bit more short-term in the horizon. So it would give him a built-in advantage. So yes, there, it, like the evolution of this is kind of weird. I also, I agree with the alighting point. However, at the same time, it's interesting to me. I, I was really skeptical about how much of this quarterly capitalism thing really is even real. Like, is it an issue? And I, I just sort of spent some time with the literature. I'm probably going to write something on this. But, you know, it actually, the research suggests, yeah, it is a problem. There, there's this fundamental issue where business investment is declining in the U.S. as a percentage of GDP. Um, and part of, there are a lot of complicated issues there. But when people have gone and looked at the way public companies uh, behave vis-a-vis private companies or compared to private companies, they find they're less likely to invest. They find that um, even if they're similar size, similar companies, they find they're less likely to spend on R&D when there are short-term incentives for the CEOs, um, like things like vesting stock options and they need to hit a quarterly earnings target. There are all these little things in literature that says, just, yeah, public companies with short-term incentives really are less likely to put their money into R&D, into long-term and how would, equipment. And how would you fix that? Um, well, that is, and that's the second question. There are people who brought up this idea of changing kind of doing it indirectly through changing the incentives for the shareholders. Um, but the other idea is... Making are, shareholders not want to make profits, for well, example. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, or at least ma- making them wait a little longer so they don't freak out the next time when, you know, when Twitter doesn't come up with the earnings, uh, the exact earnings or user growth. They want that quarter. But the other way you hear talked about a lot is through um, changing essentially executive compensation practices yet again um, to try and create a little bit more of a long-term horizon. My skepticism there is just like we've tried to toy with executive compensation so many times through history and nothing ever seems to work. My, and, and my view, which I've totally cribbed as I normally do pretty much crib everything from Matt Levine, is that... Um, is, <laughs> thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Is, is that 
um, if you look at what happened this week with Twitter, came out with disappointing quarterly. Well, the earnings were actually spectacular, yeah, it but rev- it, 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 it came out with disappointing user growth figures, and its stock kind of plunged to an all-time low. Um, at the same time as Facebook uh, announced, you know, a, a bunch of very long-term investments in stuff which no one can understand whether or when it will ever make money and everyone applauded and sent its stock through the roof. So the question isn't really, you know, are shareholders obsessed with quarterly earnings? It's that they keep companies they don't trust, like Twitter, on a very short leash and punish them when the earnings are bad. And if they do trust you, if your name is Facebook or Amazon or something like that, they will let you invest and make fewer profits. I, I, I'm sort of kind of developing a theory. This It's a little bit like, it's a little ill-defined at this point, but I, I, I buy the idea that investors are pretty good at making sure companies waste money, don't waste money like on, on bad ideas, I, that they're pretty good at telling them, yeah, that investment's probably not going to pan out Twitter. You need to think up something better. Um, I wonder if that's actually good for the economy, though. I wonder if like a certain level of investment waste is probably just good for GDP in the end and just everyone running. But that's as... why we have venture capitalists. Yeah, but yeah, right. They never waste <laughs> money. <laughs> venture capital. Anyway. But 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 I, I mean, I take your point that the quarterly, um, that, the, that the short termism is sort of a deep problem and that that it is not actually to, to give to give Clinton more credit. It is an issue we should talk about and the effects on our overall economy and the, and the ways in which it focuses um, our economy less on actually developing and building long-term. So, Zephyr, you're the politician. What would you do about it? Uh, lim- I, I, I will throw in that... Uh, oh, what- great. I have, a, I, have a, I have an advisor <laughs> speaking. What, I was about to say something crazy. She's st- stepping in. I, mean, I, I feel like what we've realized is that the market is whimsical. Like, you know, who, who, who knew? But, I mean, the real problem with it... Um, politically speaking, as far as I'm concerned, is how much our 401k, how much our retirement depends on this market. So that that that's one thing we try to extricate. If we can do something about this, we could extricate our for our futures from that the whimsy so, of so the market. I, so I I um, I think of it as the double problem of concentration and financialization, and that the ways to address those are, are more fundamental than uh, dealing with these particular little little fixes. And so, you know, my own focus is on the concentration part of that, you know, on actually a, a more diffuse, more competitive market that one of the big problems we have now is how incredibly concentrated it, it is and then also how volatile it is. And then I, I have a, a lot more ideas on that than I do on the sort of financialization. But I think when you have a combination of short-termism and financialization, that's when things get really crazy. What would okay. you do, President? Uh, president, I'm I'm not allowed to run for president because I was born in Canada. No, wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and another sponsor is ZipRecruiter. I really like ZipRecruiter because it's just one of those things which makes your life much much easier. Because you want to hire someone, and you don't want to be faffing around with a million different websites and forms and interviews and everything. What you do is you go to ZipRecruiter. And they do everything for you. This is ZipRecruiter.com. You wind up posting to over 100 different job sites with one click. And people, you'll just find the perfect person. So if you're Zephyr Teachout or anyone else who needs to hire someone, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. And if you do that, you get to try it for free. So ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. Try it for free. Hire the perfect person.
Okay, we are going to move on to the numbers round. Oh. Yes. Um, my number is $195 billion. Um, that's the amount of money that auto insurances uh, companies uh, got in premiums last year. And the reason I mention this, it's $200 billion, um, is because... That, that's like $1,000 per... No, it's $2,000 per household. It's a lot of money. And it's all going away, is the theory, because auto driving cars are on the horizon. And then they're much safer than individual drivers. So what's going to happen to the insurance industry? I don't know how many people are going to cry for the insurance industry, but there's a lot of people working in the insurance industry. So it's not just all the Uber drivers that are going to be out of a job. There'll yeah. be some sort of insurance. It, it's going to take a while for these. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll figure something. <laughs> they'll figure, they'll, they'll figure <laughs> Seriously, this is another case where money and politics will totally fix that. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be something. Like everything else. I, I have another big number. Um, but this is, I think this is the first, like, number of its magnitude, which isn't a dollar number. My number is 63 billion. Six hundred and sixty-five million thirty-six thousand three hundred and thirty-nine point something. No, <laughs> no, it's an integer. Okay, um, and this number, which is you know a real, it's 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 accurate down to the actual last digit, is not a number of dollars. It is the number of errors that goldman sachs made in reporting its stock trades to finra oops <laughs> that's amazing actually it's not amazing but it's amazing billion. it's amazing fine for this because they you know they they had to put in order reports and they just messed up a whole was, bunch of order reports was like for years and years was, and years was there like a spreadsheet where everything was just like moved one to the left <laughs> I, I, I love that number because i do think there is this sort of fantasy that those uh, with power and money are competent <laughs> and as one of my best friends likes to point out, you know, remember, armies have marched in the wrong direction for weeks at a time throughout world history. <laughs> and Goldman is one of them. <laughs> Don't forget that Goldman probably made more profit off this, this these errors than they had to pay in fines. Like, I, I actually, that doesn't make them not an no, no, error. The, the, no. No, the, this, is, this is entirely reporting errors. They, they made no profit off okay. them at all. It was just they just got Messed their up. numbers yeah. wrong. Yeah. Like some, some accountant is just like so fired right now. <laughs> so. Probably a programmer. Zeb, yeah. do you have a number? Oh, you have so much more faith in people getting fired when they, uh, <laughs> people in power getting fired when they mess up. I've, I, have, I have two numbers, I'm sorry. One I have to say, because as my, in my new role of, as May Day, is the number of presidential candidates who are stumping on public financing of elections is zero. Not even Bernie Sanders? He mentions it, but he talks about the constitutional amendment all the time, and it's a real issue. So, um, Which Bernie... constitutional amendment? <laughs> right, the, the fantasy constitutional amendment. Actually, he and Hillary are kind of similar on this. They both talk about Citizens United a lot and not about the thing we could do, which is public financing. Right. But, but more relevant is I, I decided to try to learn to bike to work this week on the day at which was the hottest days day in two years, I and believe, in New York. Humid. And I so believe horrible. I believe in one subway station in New York, it was 106 degrees. Mm. Brooklyn Bridge City Hall, right underneath City Hall. Yeah, it's a gruesome subway station. I hate that subway yeah, station. This entire city feels like an armpit right now. Just like really. Today's better. Oh, yeah, no, today. it's not. It's mildly. Jordan, <laughs> take us home. What's your number? Mine's a millennial number. Uh, so my number is 19.54% which is uh, the percentage of uh, 25 to 34-year-olds who are living at home with their parents or a relative. Uh, that's actually up over the last quarter. 
uh, according to a recent report from Pew. Um, it's up a little bit from the end of 2014. And what's interesting about this is the economy is getting better and better and better, like slowly but surely. And young adults in that, in specifically that range, are not moving out of the nest. Um, and I feel like... It's, uh, and they're actually staying in the nest more. Yeah, exactly. They're staying in the nest. They've, yeah, it's it's edged up a tiny bit. Um, so what's the explanation? I there people are trying to figure this out. I think that the bottom line is that we are just a are like as a society we've become less a less conducive place for young people to live alone. There's since students, the recession. Uh, since the recession, even yes, which is over uh, for, for reasons that have nothing to do with the recession. Which is just there's student debt for educated young people. For less educated young people, they're just rising rents. Forty six percent of uh, young adults are essentially rent burden now, um, which is up from two thousand. Um, there's the issue of marriage. People get married later, which. Essentially, you know, there are really good, re- there are really like great positive aspects of that. It, you know, it makes you, more, it helps finishing education, for instance. However, it also um, makes you a little bit more vulnerable financially. Uh, if something happens, you lose a job, you might, you know, be more likely to just go back and live with your parents than if you uh, had a wife or a husband. Um, so, so I'm not crazy about the debt debt parts of this, but is right? I guess part of the question is: Is it really a tragedy that is people are? Well, yeah, to so, like. They're probably living a, better than. So I think I don't think it's a tragedy. It's like we're just becoming a little bit more European in a way. Yeah. But the the one issue it does bring up is housing formation, which is traditionally a very important driver in economic growth. We build houses, you know, we people buy appliances, things like that, and we're sort of delaying all of that. And so that could create some ripple effects in the economy in the future. It's an interesting. I, I think I buy the debt story. I think that what happened is that when the recession hit a bunch of people who were unable to find jobs went to university instead racked up a bunch of loans they've now graduated from university but they have these loans yeah. and now is when they now is when you see them moving back in what, with what, the parents I'd also be interested to know you know where it is is it in urban areas is it everywhere um, you know are there particular sub patterns that I feel like I've seen that map somewhere and like I, I'm just not re- I'm not remembering <laughs> it but one one last thing to remember is that this is on the question of how much does the recession have to do with this, this is a trend that started before the recession. It actually started during the housing boom. Um, and now it's lasted past the recession. So this is that's why it looks more like a kind of structural change than a cyclical one, um, at least to me. Some people disagree. A lot of my commenters think I'm an idiot for suggesting that. And never, they're just like, we're still poor. But I, uh, you know, I think there's something bigger afoot. Okay. Well, that's it amazingly, for this week. Thank you all for listening to Slate Money. Subscribe to our show by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review. Write to us at slatemoney.slate.com. Let us know if you're applying for the job of executive director of Mayday PAC. Um, Many thanks to Audrey Quinn, the producer of Slate Money, and to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, Andy Bowers, the executive producer who I here is moving to New York City. This is a big move. Um, And who runs the Panoply Network, which is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You will find other amazing podcasts. But mostly, many, many thanks to the one and only Zephyr Teachout. Oh, thank you for having me. Because it was amazing to have you here. So we will talk to you next week. I think next week we're going to talk about more about marriage and the economics of marriage. It's going to be fun. On Slate Money. (laughs) 